to Nehemiah 8 is where we're going to be this morning, Nehemiah 8, uh, actually the very tail end of chapter 7, and then Nehemiah 8, 1 through 12, yes, so, uh, yeah, so let's dive in. It says, and when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And when he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood, okay, it's a bunch of names, so just bear with me, okay? Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Malchiah, Hashem, and Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. Thank you, thank you. Some more names to come, so don't clap yet. If you're looking for names for your children, we've got a few more to go through. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and he opened it, and when he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And he said to them, go your way, eat the, fat and drink, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, we trust you to speak to us today uh, that, and ask that you would form not only our minds and our wills, uh, but our hearts more deeply uh, to love you. Let me pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you want to be a strong person? Yes. Yes. And I'm not talking uh, like buff or muscly, although you might also want that. Uh, if you want tips on that, this is not the place to be this morning. It's, it's somewhere else. Uh, but we do, right? We want to be like emotionally strong people, people with grit and with perseverance, people who can fight for what is good and true, who can get, get tired but keep going. That in the face of adversity, we wouldn't be defeated or daunted. Right? That we want to be people who are strong. Do you want to be a joyful person? Yes, of course, right? We want that too. 
right? That we would be like joy uh, radiators. You guys know people who are like this? Right, that are so, that have a, a sense of joy that's so deep in them that although they can be affected and, and touched by and moved by what's happening in life, uh, that, that the circumstances that they find themselves in never crush them or, or totally defeat them, right? Yeah, of course we want that. I do. I want that for me. I want that for us. And I, what we see in this passage is that that's actually what God wants for his people that the joy of the Lord would be our strength. That's what verse 10 talks about here. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that's what the Levites are telling God's people. They're telling him, hey, this is something that you need to know about who God is and who you are as the people of God, that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And my agenda for this morning uh, in the sermon and in the service, because I think it's from this text, is that you would be a person who builds and maintains trellises in your life that grow you in the grace and the joy of the gospel. That you would be a person, that we would be a people who build and maintain trellises in our lives that grow us in the joy and the grace of the gospel, that help us grow up into what it means for the joy of the Lord to be our strength. And I just want to warn you, okay? Uh, what we're doing here this morning, what we're talking about as we read through the word together is a starting place for you to think about uh, what I just said in your own life. That you building trellises in your life for you to experience the joy and the grace of God more deeply is not something that happens by showing up here on a Sunday morning. This is an important part of that. This is one of those trellises, we'll talk about that. But for you to build and maintain those things in your life that are gonna root you deeply in the joy and the grace of the gospel, you're gonna have to leave here and think about what God wants to speak to you through his word, to reflect on your life. And so the hope of what we're doing here in the sermon this morning is giving you the tools that you need to leave and then think about what are the tools or what are the, what are the rhythms, what are the trellises that you've built in your life that are shaping you? And are they shaping you and growing you into the person who God created you to be? Or are they growing you into something else? Okay, so let's talk first about this whole idea of, uh, of trellis building. And if you've been with us for a little while in Nehemiah, you might be confused because you might think, I thought that this whole book was about wall building, right? You're not wrong, okay? That is a big part of the book. We've been talking about it for the last several weeks because Nehemiah and the people uh, who have returned to Jerusalem out of exile have been building this wall. Uh, you may also note that we have skipped ahead a few chapters. So I'm just gonna, uh, we'll, we'll do a brief flyover of where we, where we what we skipped, because I think that'll kind of help us understand this transition from wall building to trellis building, okay? So if you remember, we finished in chapter five, which talked about Nehemiah's generosity, right? the way that he didn't insist on his rights, but he used what God had given him to serve the people around him. Yes? Uh, and, and so we moved out of that, and, and then what happens in the next chapters is that in chapter six, there's more, Nehemiah confronts more opposition into the rebuilding of the wall. 
Uh, and the reason that we've skipped over that is not because it's not important, but because we have a limited amount of time and what we can preach as we move through this book. And the theme of chapter six and what we do in the face of opposition is a theme that we've already dealt with a few different times in studying this book. Okay, so that's kind of chapter six. Then in chapter seven, uh, the wall gets finished. Woo, it's great news. It says this in, in I guess this is six, 15, so six and seven. It says, so the wall was finished on the 25th month of the day of Elul in 52 days. Whoa, that's like quite an accomplishment, right? The people with all of this work that they've done together have been able to rebuild this wall around Jerusalem in a matter of 52 days. And then, classic Bible, there's a list of names and people who have returned from exile. and It's important, but we're not gonna work through that today. And there's this transition from wall building to trellis building that happens as we move from chapter seven into chapter eight. And the reason that happens is because the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem, right, that was never the end in and of itself. That this huge project of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, that was always in Nehemiah's mind and in the mind of the people a means to an end. That rebuilt wall was a means to the end of the people of God worshiping God. That worship of God was the goal. And the wall, by creating safety in the city, right, preserved the temple and created a space for the worship of God to happen. And what happens in this chapter, what we just read, is that now the people get to re-engage in the worship of God. And we... We see that it says when the seventh month had come. What this tells us is that this, uh, this ceremony that they, that they jumped into started six days after they had finished the wall. So man, right on the heels of the wall getting done, the people of Israel jump right back into the Jewish liturgical calendar. And what they're doing there is they're re-engaging in these trellises God gave them to shape their life and identity as a people. And the feast that they jump back into is the Feast of Trumpets. It's described back in the book of Leviticus. And what this, what this feast was about, it was about the people of God celebrating the fact that God had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. So there, throughout the Old Testament, God gives his people a whole calendar of celebrations that are meant to anchor them in their identity as the people of God. And, and it starts in the people's deliverance from Egypt. And so actually this Feast of Trumpets became associated with the Jewish New Year Festival uh, over time because it, this deliverance from Egypt was so core to the identity of the people. Right? It was when God brought the nation of Israel out of slavery. And if you think about where uh, those who were rebuilding the wall were coming from, right? they, had, they had just been gathered from all of the nations where they had been sent into exile and they're coming back into Jerusalem. And so in a lot of ways, their story parallels the story of the Egyptian exodus. They've been brought back out of their slavery into the promised land. And so they all gather together in, in this square of the newly uh, rewalled city of Jerusalem to celebrate and to commemorate God's deliverance of the people out of, the, out of slavery in Egypt. And what they're being reminded of as that happens is that God has in fact delivered them that they had been delivered out of the nations and brought back to this place where God promised that his name would dwell. And the people 
are hungry for this ceremony. It, it says that they, uh, they called for Ezra to bring out the law. They said, come, read us the word of God because we want to be reminded of who we are because they had spent all of this time in exile forgetting who they were, surrounded by a people who didn't share their culture, their customs, or their worship of God. And now they're finally back together. And they've all gathered together and they're eager to hear, God, would you tell us who we are? Would you shape us into your people as we worship you? Because what we know about worship we talked about this a few weeks ago, is that worship shapes us, right? We talked about this guy, David Foster Wallace, not a Christian, but, but in, in this commencement address that he gives, he tells the, the students at Kenyon College, hey, everybody worships something. Everybody. Whether it's your health, whether it's money, whether it's power, we are all worshiping something. And the things that we worship shape us. They change us. I was reading a book uh, a few weeks ago about this guy who climbed Mount Everest. I love Mount Everest stories, okay? And this, this one uh, is a little bit more recent. I think the climb was in 2018, 19, right before COVID. And this guy, was a, was a, he worked for National Geographic, and he had really, like, poo-pooed climbing Mount Everest for a long time. It's like, oh, climbing Mount Everest is so commercialized now. You know, it's, it's not even a real climb. You're just paying someone to kind of schlep you up a mountain. Well, then he got the opportunity to do some work on Mount Everest, okay? And the whole time, the whole uh, adventure is premised on them uh, looking, for a, uh, looking for the body of a guy who tried to climb Mount Everest in the 1920s. I won't go into the whole story, okay? But I think it's super interesting. Stay focused. So anyway, his whole, his whole uh, adventure is built around getting to Mount Everest but not climbing to the top. So getting all the way there, getting a few thousand feet below the top, but not going to the top. And so he spends all this time training to get on the mountain, right? He spends time every night for months. He sleeps in this pressurized tent in his bedroom that makes it impossible for his wife to sleep. It's this whole thing. Anyway, he, spend month, he spends months and months and months getting ready for this climb. And what do you think happens when he gets to just a few thousand feet below the peak? Well, he well yes, a lot of people get sick. He doesn't get sick. He decides he wants to climb the mountain. Because what he's been doing for months and months and months is he's been, he's been building and, and bending his whole life around this mountain and it's captured his imagination and his heart. And even though he's written all these articles saying climbing Mount Everest is very stupid and no one should do it and it's so commercialized, when he gets a few thousand feet below, he decides he wants to do it. Because what we give our lives to, what we build our rhythms around, those things shape us. They shape what we desire, and because they shape what we desire, they shape how we live. What we worship changes us. And God knows that about us as people. That's not, uh, that's not a design flaw. That's how he made us. That we would be people who would be worshipers, and that as we would worship him, that that would draw us more fully into who he created us to be. And so that's why as the people of Israel gather now back into the city where they can worship God, the first thing they do is jump back into this calendar because they know that it's the calendar that God has given them to shape them and remind them who they are as God's people, whose they are as God's people. That these ceremonies are shaping them to live in the world as men and women uh, before the face of God that they would be aware of his presence, of his holiness, and of his inescapable love for them. 
And so God gave them this calendar to, to shape uh, the way that they thought about time and every aspect of their lives so that his presence could seep into every aspect of their lives. And this liturgical calendar was the, was the trellis for them to grow their lives on. Okay, I've been talking a lot about trellises. I guess we should probably talk about what a trellis does for a minute, okay? Uh, you know, trellises are the things that grapevines grow on. And I did kind of a deep dive into why uh, trellises are a thing that you put grapevines on. Super interesting. You can read a lot about it. Uh, but basically, grapevines are, they're climbers. They are, they're going to grow until they can climb on something. And they really grow like out of control. And what happens is that if, if a grapevine doesn't have something to, to crawl up, the fruit ends up uh, growing on the ground and rotting. And the fruit becomes impossible to harvest. So it's bad fruit, and it becomes impossible to harvest. And what happens is that uh, grapes only grow on the extremities of the vine, like on new growth. And so it makes vines impossible, uh, the fruit impossible to reach if you haven't done a good job of trellising the vine and directing its growth. So a trellis, it keeps, it creeps fruit from rotting, it promotes new growth, and it allows for pruning of the vine, which overall supports a healthy plant. And that's the same for us. That the rhythms of the Christian life are a trellis that allow us uh, to grow our souls in such a way that the fruit that we produce in our lives is good gospel fruit. Like think about the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All things that we want more of in our lives. Right? And the trellises that we build, the structures that we build, the disciplines, the rhythms that we engage in in the Christian life are a way of directing our souls in such a way that that fruit can reach maturity in us. It's a way of opening up space for sun and for light to come into our lives. It makes space for the master gardener, Jesus, to come in and to, to prune us, to keep us healthy. That these rhythms are how we claim our identity. And what's happening here in this passage is that God's people are claiming these rhythms that help define them. I think the call for us is that we, that we as a church would claim the rhythms that God has given us collectively and individually. Right, that we would bear the fruit that, that we so desire and that God so desires for our life, like joy that would be our strength. And one of these rhythms for us uh, is what happens here on Sunday mornings. But this is actually a, a primary trellis that God has given us, a rhythm that he's given us in our lives uh, to, to grow in these disciplines of joy and grace. And we see, uh, we see even the seeds of what we do here on Sunday morning in, in what we read in this passage. Look at verse one. It says, all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. That's what we're doing here. We're gathered together in person. That's why, uh, that's why 
what we were offering online for church can never replace what happens here. And it is necessary to keep people safe and because of that, it's important to do, absolutely. But our hope has always been that we would get to be back to, together, gathered together. It's an important part of this rhythm that God has given us. And then we see in verses two and three that the law of God, the word of God, uh, takes up a really central place in this, in this rhythm for, for the people of Israel, but also for us. It says, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, which is why we have the babies in the back. But that's, that's a joke, but it's a little bit true, actually. Uh, all you have, who have had kids and brought them in here know that it's just hard. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. That's like four hours of just reading the word. So we're now gonna be changing all of our services to be four hours long. No, we will not be doing that. But what it says is that reading God's word is an important part of our rhythm together. That's, that's why we read the word so much when we gather together on Sunday mornings. You know that? We read it when we do the call to worship. We read it before the sermon. We read it at the end. And it's also just a fun fact why I always read it out of a Bible. Because what this does is it reminds us that any text that we're in is part of a larger story. It's not something that we've just picked off by itself, but it exists in this whole narrative of God's work in the world. And when we gather together, we're in God's word because it's the way that God speaks to us. That when we read it here together, what we believe is that it is actually God himself talking to us. And so our time here together is centered in the word. But what we also know is that sometimes just reading the word, it can be hard to understand, right? It was hard for these people to understand, which is kind of a relief. It's not just us. And that's why it says uh, that the, the priests and the Levites went out amongst the people and gave the interpretation of, of the word. They were doing essentially what is happening now. They were giving little sermons. They were helping the people to understand the message that was in the word that was being read. And then we see the people respond with their hearts to what's been read, right? In weeping and in rejoicing, then in feasting, which is kind of what we do when we take communion. We're not doing that today, but again, that's a part of our service. This, this feast of rejoicing is a part of how we come together in this rhythm of worshiping God. And I say all that just, just to give you some visibility to the fact that, that the way we think about what happens on Sunday morning is that this is a rhythm that helps us each week to reclaim and remind ourselves of the identity that we've been given in Christ. That allows us to be shaped uh, by the story of what God has done for us. It's a trellis that allows us to bear more fruit. As the master gardener comes amongst us here and prunes us for us to be healthy. And while, and while what we and while what we do here, though, it, it's, it's necessary, but what this passage also teaches us is that it's not sufficient in and of itself. That, that rhythms in and of themselves are not sufficient to grow us up in the joy of the Lord being our strength. Because look what happens in verses 9 and 11, 9 through 11. It says, Nehemiah, who is the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. 
And what happens is that, so the people are re-engaging in these rhythms that God has given them. But it turns out that even as they're re-engaging in these rhythms, they're, they're missing the point of the rhythm, right? That what Nehemiah and, and the, the scribes, the Levites, Ezra the priest tell the people is, hey, uh, the fact that re- hearing the word is only drawing out mourning in you and weeping in you means that, uh, that you're missing it. You're missing the joy and the grace of the gospel. See, when, it, when this passage talks about the law of Moses, it's talking about the first five books of the Bible, the, the Pentateuch, or Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So it's not just God's rules for his people, it's the story of God coming to his people and making promises to them. It's the story of the covenant. But what the people were hearing, the only part of of the readings that they were able to take in was was the law as a, a, the only way they were hearing it is that the law was was being a mirror to them which is one of the ways God intended the law. And this is one of the ways that the, the reformers talked about the law of God. They said that, that the law, when we hold it up to ourselves, is a mirror, and what it shows us is our sin. And when that happens, it makes us sad, right? And so that's what was happening to the people, is that they were looking at themselves in the law of God and the story of God, and they were seeing all of their past failures. They were seeing all of the past failures of their, of their ancestors. They were seeing all of their own pa- past failures. They were seeing their own present failures. And, and I think they were also seeing all the potential for them to fail into, into the future. That as they were hearing the law, they were, they were coming under this, this enormous burden of the law. And they were saying, we cannot possibly keep this. And it was driving them to mourning and to weeping. Is it possible that we could ever experience the word of God that way? In a way that just brings burden? Maybe you've experienced that as you've engaged in the rhythms of the Christian life. Maybe even coming here on a Sunday morning, rather than being something that is life-giving, becomes a heavy burden because what you walk away with is the sense that I have to do more for God in order to get God to love me. The Christian life becomes this exercise of, of trying to figure out the rules of this God that you can't quite pin down so that you can make him happy, so that you can maybe get something from him. And I, problem there is not the trellis, right? It's not, it's not the rhythm of the Christian life, but the problem is that there's, a, there's a, a misunderstanding of the message there, and it's a misunderstanding that probably all of us at times have walked in. And we see in this passage that God has great compassion for that, but he also desires to correct our understanding, our misunderstanding, really, of who he is. Because if we walk away from looking at ourselves in the law and all we see is our own sin, we're, mi- we're missing it. If you walk away from reading the first five books of the Bible, of reading any page of the Bible, and all we walk away with is our sense of all the things we need to do to get ourselves right with God, we're missing the story. Because the story of Scripture from the first page to the last page is all about God's dedication to keeping his promises to his people despite what they do. 
That was true for his people in the Old Testament and that's true for us now. If you think about even the stories uh, in those first five books, like the story of Abraham, right? Our forefather in the faith. This man to whom God made all of these glorious promises about how through Abraham he was gonna bless the entire world. And then what does Abraham do? He goes and tries to give his wife away to Pharaoh. That's a big problem, right? He agrees to sleep with his wife's servant. Also a big problem. So Abraham's story is a story of God making promises to this man and then Abraham taking them into his own hands and God maintaining his, his promises even when Abraham couldn't hold on to them himself. That's the story of God's work and the people when they're in slavery in Egypt. This whole nation is in slavery there and honestly the people have totally forgotten even who God is. And yet, even there, God hears them, he sees them, and he comes for them. He delivers them. And that's even true with the giving of the law. That God gives his people the Ten Commandments and all these other rules, and he says, hey, I'm giving you these because they're gonna bring you life. But even then, God knows that his people aren't gonna be able to keep all of those laws. And so he gives them the sacrificial system He gives them ways to have their sin covered. So even in the law itself, God is weaving grace into the story. He's showing his dedication to keep his promises knowing that his people won't be able to keep their end of it themselves. The whole story is about a God who keeps his promises. And that was true for these people who were hearing the word read here in Nehemiah 8. But if it was true for them, how much more is that true for us who are able to see clearly the way that God has, desi- has planned to keep his promises through the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? Through his death and through his resurrection. But in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we see God's complete and utter dedication to coming for and and keeping his people, to redeem a people to himself despite what they would do. Even while we were enemies, right? It says Christ died for us. And here's what is mind-blowing to me about the work of Christ on the cross. is that Jesus, Jesus didn't go to the cross out of a sense of obligation. It wasn't because he had made a promise to God the Father and now God was kind of calling him on it and saying, hey, you really gotta follow through on this. What Hebrews 12 tells us is that Jesus, enjoyed, in, Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And the joy that was set before him was you. that you are his joy. And because you are his joy, because he delights in you so much that he desired to go to the cross for you, that he endured the suffering of that because of the joy that he finds in you. So the joy of the Lord can be our strength because we have a God who rejoices over us. We find our joy in the fact that God finds his joy in us. I 
I was thinking about like, well, how do we how do we bring this to life a little bit? And all I could keep coming back to was uh, who I think is the really the most loved TV couple of our time, which is obviously. Jim and Pam, yes. I was hoping someone would say that. It's so true. Jim and Pam from The Office, people, okay? Just stick with me here. You may not all be Office fans, but in the last few years on Netflix, uh, The Office has been like the most streamed show up until very recently when it left Netflix. So I think a lot of us know Jim and Pam. And there's this, if, okay, base, if you don't know The Office, Jim is a person who works at a paper company. He's a salesman. It's kind of a whatever job. And he's in love with this woman who is the receptionist at the company. And what, what you get from the very first episodes, from the first season, is that Jim delights in Pam. Okay, there's this, there's this moment in, in the first season where they're doing a, a close-up of Jim, and they, they have, they've essentially asked him, would you ever leave this company? And he says, if I left, what would I do with all the useless information in my mind, like the tonnage price of manila folders and Pam's favorite flavor of yogurt, which is mixed berry? And then it cuts from that to uh, an interview of Pam, and she says, Jim said mixed berries. Oh, he's on to me. And what I love about that, uh, those scenes, is that when Pam talks about her favorite flavor of yogurt being mixed berries, she lights up with the fact that Jim knows. She's beaming when she talks about her favorite flavor of yogurt and the fact that Jim knows what her favorite flavor of yogurt is. And what... Is no one else following this with me? Okay, I thought this, this is, maybe I'm just an Office fan, okay. But, but what, they, what they've asked Jim, and the question is, would you ever leave? And he says, no, because I love this woman who is sitting across from me. And so I won't leave. And so the whole show unfolding is this picture of Jim consistently and constantly delighting in Pam over and over and over. Just he enjoys being around her. And because he enjoys being around her, he keeps this job that he otherwise does not like because it's the way that he can be around this woman who he delights in. And later on when they get together, there's this, there's this episode where they, they spend all day talking in these little miniature Bluetooths in their ears. And it's funny, but also so sweet because they just want to be together. They just want to talk to each other. And we, and we see that, and we're like, yes, I want that in my life. Jenna Fisher, the woman who plays Pam, has talked about how when people stop her in the street and they see her holding hands with her husband, they're very upset. <laughs> Legitimately. They're like, hey, where's Jim? And she's like, Jim's not real. And I'm not Pam. I'm a person. Everybody knows that, right? We know how TV works. I think it's that we, we see, we've seen this picture, we've engaged with this, with this story of a couple who delights in each other so much that we desperately want it to be real. And it is real for us in the gospel. How much more, right? That you have a God who delights in you, who finds his joy in you, who desires to be with you. And because of his great desire to be with you, he gave up everything to come and find you and bring him to, to himself. And that, that joy of being a people who are delighted in, finding our joy in that joy, that's where our strength comes from. So yeah, there are times in the Christian life where we are sad, absolutely. There are things in this life that make us mourn, yes, 
And even when we confront the sin in our life, when we hold up a mirror and what we see reflected back to us is our own sin, I hope that breaks our hearts more and more. Because it's never supposed to stop there. That what that mirror does is it points us to our need for Christ who came for us and gave himself for us. What it does is it deepens our appreciation for the great and boundless love that our Jesus has for us. And the call of this passage is that we would build trellises in our lives, structures in our lives, rhythms in our lives that would help us grow, uh, grow more deeply in the joy of the Lord that's our strength. Because the reality is, uh, we all have rhythms in our lives, right? Before you go to bed, you brush your teeth, probably. <laughs> and some of you even floss, right? And if you are a flosser, the chances are you do it every night. Because there's only two kinds of people, people who floss all the time, people who floss never. And I guess the people who floss right before they go to the dentist. But the <laughs> The point is we all have rhythms. That's, that's like a small example, but I promise you, if you take the time to step back at your life and look and ask, what are the rhythms of my life? They're there, and they're shaping you. What you do when you get home from work, the way that you, uh, you have rhythms around that. Of course, they're good things. There was this Harvard Harvard Business School Review article, that's a lot of words, that was all about kind of ritual during the pandemic. And what the author was saying is that you can study people's rituals. There's, there's a whole field of, of academic study all about that, and that people love rituals, and that during the pandemic, so many of our rituals fell away. And what this author was saying is, it doesn't even matter what ritual you create, you just gotta create something to bring some structure to your life, because we all need that kind of structure. And he was really encouraging people, hey, you gotta think about what kind of structure, what do you need in your life and build structures that support and guide you toward that end. That's the call of this passage. Is that we would engage in the, in the structures that God has given us, the rhythms that God has given us that ground us in the reality of how much our God rejoices over us that we would find our joy in him. And, and spoiler alert, okay, uh, that's the story that we are so consistently attempting to ground us in during these services that we do together. I hope there are times that you leave here and you think to yourself, I think I've heard that sermon before. Yes, because it's always the same, <laughs> okay? What we're always talking about is the gospel. Every Sunday, what we're reminding you in, in, the, in the readings that we do and the songs that we sing is that you have a God who loved you, loves you and gave himself for you, that you have a God who delights in you, who rejoices over you with singing. That this would be a place that we would come week after week to be reminded in that and that would give us the structure that we need to build other structures in our lives that root us deeply in that reality, that grow us in that reality so that the fruit that we would produce in our lives would come to fullness and maturity, fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, and self-control. That we would grow together in what it means for the joy of the Lord to be our strength. Pray with me.
Father, we, uh, we're thankful for your word. Jesus, we're thankful that, uh, that you don't relate to us out of obligation. Lord, that you, that you love us and that you like us. That you rejoice over us, that you find great joy in us, and that you invite us uh, to find our joy in you. Lord, we ask that that reality would be more than knowledge that we engage in, Lord, but that it would be a reality that you use to touch our hearts. That would cause us to desire and to love you more and more. And ask that, Lord, even as we uh, worship you now in, in song, that you would be moving and growing our hearts deeper in that reality. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.